Elizabeth. Well, welcome. Welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. And I have an exceptional unicorn with me today and a very young unicorn at that. So, um, Jose, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, hi, everyone. My name is Jose Caballero from Nicaragua. I'm a huge mental health advocate and blogger. Um, I'm 18 years old and I'm very happy, beyond thrilled to be here. I cannot express that enough. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you here as well, Jose. So folks know, like, how do I meet some of these people who come on to be guests on the podcast is some of them I've known for quite some time in my work also as a mental health advocate, and some I've just recently met. And Jose would be somebody I've just recently met at um, the Inseparable Mental Health Strategy Summit. So he was one of the young scholars that was there. And I was just so impressed by everybody. I was like, wow, what was I doing at 18? Not this. So (laughs) um, how did you get into advocacy? Like what led you to kind of get into it at such a young age? Yeah, that's that's a kind of like a great question. And that's what we went over at the summit, right? Like your why, why you're here, why you care so much about mental health. And I think that my why has to be my background and my personal experience with mental health. So a little bit about me, I grew up, I was born and raised in Nicaragua. When I was two years old, my mother immigrated from Nicaragua to the U.S., searching for a better life and a better future for my sister and I. And in making this decision, she entrusted my care to my father. But then at the end of the day, my father is an alcoholic, so he was unable to take the responsibility and was unable to take care of us. Eventually, my care went to my aunt who was always there to support us, but not in an emotional way. So growing up in a Hispanic community, mental health is looked and open, and it's very, very rare to see anyone talk about mental health. Just to tell you that when I was a little kid, when my mother left Nicaragua, I just felt something in me. I didn't know what it was. Now, reflecting back, I know I was depressed and I was dealing with a lot of mental health struggles and stressors, but I didn't know anything about that. And I remember I would cry when I was six, seven years old because, yeah, I did have the financial support from my mother, but I didn't have the emotional support of anyone. And I didn't have anything to emotionally or anyone to emotionally rely on. And I remember crying. And why my family members will tell me is that boys never cry, right? Boys are this strong figure in the family. You need to be proud to be a male. Boys never cry. And I will go to school crying because I will spend my birthdays, Christmas alone in a house. My father will come at 2 a.m. in the morning after drinking and I will be sleeping, taking care of my sister. I also had to take care of my sister who my mom, my mom left when she was like three, four months old. So it was, I think my why mental health has to be my experience with mental health and just the fact that I didn't know about it until mm-hmm. I came to the U.S. I really, really understand the mental health and I, that's, that's my why. Wow. Wow. That is such a, um, you know, I hate to say a, a somewhat common story, meaning that, you know, when we talk about, especially, you know, folks who immigrate from other countries from like, you know, if they're Latinx, I can even think as a Black young person that um, it's so interesting when you're talking about you're crying at six years old. Yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, I remember that. Like I was always crying and upset, but, but my mom did say, even though we didn't talk about mental health, the same way that you're saying, you know, one thing that she said was that she remembers me always having sad eyes as a young person. And so later, you know, when there was 
we had more information about what was going on, she said then she could put all the pieces together and see kind of what was going on um, later. So is it easier for you now to talk about mental health within your family and in your community? So that that's a really good question. And that brings me to this other point, which is about trauma, right? Uh, the other day I was watching on TikTok, I was on TikTok and I saw a video of this lady from Cuba and she was expressing how young individuals nowadays are always depressed or they have anxiety. And some individuals have to take pills for that, right? And then she was stating the fact that when she was younger, she had to go through a lot of things in Cuba. She had to do a lot of stuff. She didn't have a bed to sleep. She didn't have food. She didn't have anything to do. And she doesn't, point was that she doesn't understand why young individuals are suffering with mental health a lot. She doesn't get the point because she said that she, her experience was worse and she never, she was never depressed or never had anxiety. So that brings me to my point that mental health, I think in every single community, and I don't want to generalize it, overgeneralize it to every single community, because there are a lot of families that are open-minded about it. But at least in my community, at least in my family, it's still a taboo. It's still something that Mm -hmm. you cannot speak about it, because if you say that you go to therapy, then you're considered a crazy individual, right? And Mm -hmm. I I, I say this, and it's very ironic, because my mom always said that you know, I came to this country for a better life. I came to this country to have a, a better life for myself and for my my children. And I always that always made me think if we came to this country for a better life, having ac- accessibility to mental health and information about mental health equates to having a better life. Because in Nicaragua, there was not a single talk about mental health. And I am just proud to see young individuals that are taking the lead into this and that are breaking the intergenerational trauma that we have. We are breaking that trauma and we're we're doing that by advocating, by sharing our stories. And I think that, in fact, I'm the only one in my family that really talks about mental health. And I'm the only one that advocates for this. And I use my social media platforms for that. And then it's just so proud and uplifting to see fellow uh, younger family members that tell me, wow, like I really do believe that mental health is crucial. And I really do believe that we should talk more about it. But yeah, I think that it's not easier, even though, although we are in a country and in the U.S. and it's completely different uh, to being in Nicaragua, it's not easy. It's still a taboo. It's still something that needs to, to, it just needs to destigmatize it. Yeah. Yeah. How do you do that with other, like, where are you finding other younger people? I know you're, you know, using social media. A lot of times people talk about the harms of social media. But I also see like when people are using social media to spread positive information, to inform people that that's the positive part of it. But, you know, where are you finding kind of like your peers and your peeps, the other people who are having these combos? So when I was a sophomore in high school, I remember I always wanted to run for SGA and I wanted to reform the whole school curriculum. I wanted to add mental health education into the school curricula. My young age didn't know anything about policy or anything about advocacy. But I did know that I could create an organization, a nonprofit at my school. So that's what I did. I created InTouch. Uh, it's a mental health awareness organization at Miami Senior High that advocates for the well-being of students. And the only resource that we have at Miami Senior High is a trust counselor, which is basically just an advisor that's there to listen to your problems and provide feedback if you need it. 
But then we took uh, this initiative on social media and we became a major force, I'll say, on social media. And we utilized social media to provide the resources that are available. Like Mental Health America has a lot of good resources and a lot of screening tests that people can take to uh, take care of their mental health. The 988 uh, hotline as well. And there are many, many other resources that young individuals aren't aware of and that are free and accessible to everyone and they're online. So things like putting links together in a Linktree account and just having that on the Instagram page or just promoting uh those resources through infographics, pro providing research. And I think that one of the things that really, really resonated with me from my experience with InTouch is that every single time we had a meeting, it was someone different leading that meeting. So at first it was only me talking about mental health, sharing my story with my fellow students. But then I a lot of students reached out to me telling me, oh, I really want to talk about my mental health. And it was so impressive to see that it went to the faculty as well. So it wasn't not only the students sharing their stories with their mental health, but there was also the faculty at school that wanted to talk about mental health. And I think that just proves the point that destigmatizing mental health by conversation really helps. And I remember one of, of the meetings by Miss Sid, who is the music teacher at Miami High. She even made us cry with her story about grieving the loss of someone. And uh, I'm, that's just uplifting. And I think that that's how I started finding people that really wanted to advocate for mental health. And once you do it, once you start doing, once you pray conformity, and when you, once you take the lead and you really say, I really want to do this, you're going to find people that also share the same idea and the same passion as you. And that's what I did. That's what InTouch does. InTouch brought together clubs to have activities, mental health activities related. InTouch brought together our faculty members, even the principal, to talk about their mental health struggles. Uh, we also, the most important thing that I'm proud of is making InTouch accessible. Because in Miami Senior High, you need to pay a fee to uh, be a member of a club. And having these activities and everything, it really costs a lot of money. But with the help of my family and a lot of donations that we received, we've fundraised more than $6,000 to the school just to have in touch there. We paid the yearbook. We made every single activity and every single thing free and accessible to everyone. Because that's that's my philosophy is that mental health should be accessible to everyone and no one should be shouldn't be able to pay a large amount of money to get access to mental health. So that's how I started my mental health advocacy. Actually, that's like the actual work that I did at my local high school. And now I I moved again to an online platform. I love social media. I think the social media is fascinating. However, as you said, uh, there are a lot of uh, pros and cons when it comes to social media. And we'll get into that later with beauty standards and body satisfaction. Have a lot to say about that. But now I moved to an online platform, which is a continuation of my mental health advocacy. It's called Get In Touch. It's a, a blog in which I write about mental health. I write about my struggles, my, and I utilize also my psychology major to kind of like give, educate people about different things, about the stages of grief, emotional intelligence, uh, and very like psychological terms that I think that are very crucial to know. And the most amazing thing and the most powerful thing about social media, I think it's like people get motivated to share their stories. So I thought that I was going to be the only one writing about my struggles and writing about my perspective on mental health. 
But little did I know that I have a whole line of people waiting to just publish their stories and they'll be coming out soon. I have a, right now I have like five features that we did. Um, and I think that's just fascinating and I love it. I love to see everyone sharing their stroke, sharing their, their stories and just empowering other people to do the same. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, first of all, we can hear the enthusiasm in your voice, right? And I'm lucky I'm on Zoom. I can see the enthusiasm, but I think, you know, for our listeners, I'm sure they can hear the enthusiasm. And I think it's such an example of, you know, takes that one person. I love how you said, you know, break with conformity. I think I'm going to hashtag that. Hashtag break with conformity. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Because when you did that, it was like, actually, there were more people who were alike, meaning having these experiences um, that now had permission to come out and talk about it and share and find community and a community of healing too, right? So I think that's so powerful. And I guess we should also say too, that you're now in college. Yeah. And um, you just finished your, is it your you're a freshman, right? I'm a freshman. Yeah. My, this is, I took summer classes. So this is my second semester. In second semester. And how did you do, Jose? I did great. 4.0. Uh, snap, snap, clap, clap. Way yeah. to go. Way to go. So yeah. you go off to college, you get straight A's, right? <laughs> you're working hard. You're a hardworking person. And you continue with this online platform, Get In Touch. So I am going to ask a little bit, because I think this will be important for people to think about. So how do you balance everything? That's a great question. Um, So I think that when it was, I think it was a sophomore, I don't know. I I was always obsessed with reading a lot of research reports. I was obsessed with that. And one of the issues that I deeply care about is beauty standards. And I remember once I was reading something and then something called emotional intelligence came into my page. And then I was like, oh, interesting. Then I went to my AP psychology class and we talked about the eight types of intelligence, emotional intelligence being one of them. And I think, I think, right, I don't know, but I think that my skills uh, with emotional intelligence are pretty awesome. I have a micro credential in emotional intelligence, understanding emotional intelligence. So I think how do I balance all of these I don't have an answer to that, but I do know that I have lately, I've been doing a lot of self-care and a lot of self-compassion because I think that sometimes we give a lot to people, but sometimes we are so, we don't give ourselves the time to really feel and to really be in the moment. And that's one of the components of emotional intelligence. It's that you need to be self-aware of your emotions You need to be self-aware of what is making you feel mad, angry, what is making you feel a certain way. And in order to feel that, you really need to understand your emotions. You really need to understand yourself. So I think that that's what helps me kind of like control everything and balance everything at the same time. It's just having that time that I know that, oh, I have a final coming up. So I know that I'm going to be stressed. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go get Boba before having my final. (laughs) That's emotional intelligence is very crucial. So I think that I'm very good at that skill, still developing, Mm -hmm. but I think it's getting there. It's getting somewhere. Yeah. I don't know if I told you this. Matter of fact, I know I didn't tell you this, that my master's degree, not the MBA, but the mm-hmm. other one in um, industrial organizational psychology. Actually, my thesis was on emotional intelligence. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> you have a lot yeah. to say then. <laughs> so um, you talked about 
beauty standards, like that led you down the rabbit hole to EI. But but let's back up to that because that's Mm -hmm. an area of interest um, for you around beauty standards and social media, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, talk a little bit about that. So when I was a little boy, when I was like a freshman in high school, I always was like, do I really like my body? And uh, questions like that were just in my head. But then uh, I ignored those questions. I don't know why. And then I will see women in my family idealize and glamorize a perfect body. And I remember one time, I think it was my sister and my mom. She was like, oh, look at this picture. I think it was a celebrity on, on the phone on Instagram. And then they were saying that they wanted to look like them. That was freshman year of high school. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Like, why do people want to change their body image? At that time, I didn't know that that was body image. So then I took AP seminar, um, the AP Capstone program. And then you need to write uh, kind of like a paper about anything that you want to write. I wrote mine about beauty standards and social media, basically how social media creates these negative beauty standards that harm you an individual's health. And then I was like, interesting, beauty standards, it's interesting. And I thought that was the end of it, but there is more. And that's where body satisfaction comes into play. A lot of the research were pretty interesting and they brought up a lot of good points. One of them being that White American females have lower levels of body satisfaction. Another one being that body satisfaction among races are completely different. Another one that really was the one for me was about how African American females have higher levels of body satisfaction and a more positive body image. And I remember, how is it possible? What what are these females doing, these women doing that increases their body satisfaction? And that's where I found the gap in the literature, the the review of the literature, right? Um, Mm. Which is like emotional intelligence. I thought, oh, emotional intelligence, that could come into play, right? Emotional intelligence. So for AP research, I conducted my independent research uh, under the supervision of Dr. Denied, my instructor. And it was about, I have found different gaps in the review of the literature. One being what psychological term can increase the levels of body satisfaction. Another one being a gap that body satisfaction is only emphasized for women. How about men? How about males, right? That's a very mm-hmm. crucial aspect as well. And then another one being the factors that influence created higher levels of body satisfaction. So that's that's my that's what my research was about. I remember one of the questions was, uh, especially in the Hispanic community, because a lot of the research was performed and conducted in African-Americans, white Americans, Asian-Americans, and among other races. But then I was like, Latina women actually have this. This is an issue in, in Latina women. This is an actual issue. I see it every day with my family members. So I decided to conduct my research on that. So what I did to make my uh, paper more unique, it's I got the individuals that had higher levels of body satisfaction. And those same individuals had had taken uh, emotional intelligence tests. And what I did is I just correlated those two scores to see if there was a correlation. And mm-hmm. in fact, I found that there was a strong statistically correlation between having higher levels of body satisfaction and emotional intelligence. And then, so I first, I had to categorize, of course, the scores, having high, moderate, and low. And then it was just fascinating to see high levels of body satisfaction had a strong correlation moderate and low levels had a weak correlation so Mm. that suggests that having body satisfaction having high levels of body satisfaction is beneficial to every single area of your life not only in the workplace in the college how to balance life 
but yeah. even in your self-esteem, even in body satisfaction. So, but yeah, but at the end, that was just like one part of the percentage, but the end, the final result was that Hispanics are dissatisfied with their bodies. Uh, wow. That was it contradicted my my hypothesis. My hypothesis was that Hispanics were going to be actually satisfied with their bodies, but no, it didn't. Uh, you know, as you're talking about this, it's really fascinating because, um, you know, we, you know, as people of color, we're comparing ourselves to white people in general who are um, sort of more dominant in media, more dominant in, you know, on the covers of, you know, magazines and on runways and all this sort of thing. I, uh, you know, kind of think back in in my life growing up, you know, I'm an army brat, so I didn't, I didn't mm-hmm. live in one place. So I lived overseas and also kind of in the U.S. And, you know, it was really hard when, when I lived in Korea because I didn't look anything like Korean women, yeah. you know, very different body types. And, you know, of course, uh, everything else is different, but the body types are very different. And so there is always this comparison about like, what do I look like compared to what do they look like? And, you know, what do my classmates look like? And so I always felt kind of honestly not having a very good image of my body as, you know, um, black women tend to have, well, we have butts. I mean, come on, what can I say? We have them. They're there for a purpose, right? Um, And they're not there to oogle at young men and young women. Don't be oogling at somebody's (laughs) boo-boo. But anyway, but um, so there was always something a little uncomfortable about that for me, Um, but never, you know, wanting to change it just recognizing that's a part of who I am and kind of like, it doesn't, it doesn't stand up to the norm. But now today we have people like Lizzo and other folks who are out there talking about sort of, you know, now, now I can own and say, yes, I'm a big black woman and like, get out the way situation, right? Like I'm all good. Right. So um, how can body image be wrapped in our culture and then also be compared to somebody else's culture that doesn't look anything like us. You know what I mean? And how that can then make us feel bad about something that normally in our culture, we wouldn't feel bad about. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. Yeah. And then just you bringing up the point of Lisa and kind of like how you feel now empowered to be yourself and to feel yourself. Uh, yeah. There is in social psychology, there is like this factor called social, the social proof, which is basically when you see someone doing a behavior, you think that that behavior is correct. And I think that the issue with body satisfaction is that the media, TV, every single thing has glamorized this idea of a perfect body. But now individuals like Lizzo making an influence and just telling people that it's okay to feel to be that way, then it's more relatable. And that's where the social factor, the social um, proof factor comes into play. So you see someone yeah. in the media that looks like you and you understand it's like, okay, I'm I'm okay. I feel okay feeling yeah. the way I am being the way I am. So yeah. that's, it's pretty interesting. It's really interesting. And kind of like I'm a psychology major and then I want to eventually get my PhD, of course. I want to get my PhD mm-hmm. um, and I'm already thinking about my thesis, already thinking about everything that I want to do. And I just want to continue this kind of like in the body satisfaction. That's one of my interests, continue researching more about body satisfaction. And from just like a psychological term, it's like it's either continuing investigating more about emotional intelligence or adding another psychological term like metacognition and how that applies to body satisfaction. And just, I think I've never, I've read a lot of studies, uh, experimental studies about body satisfaction, but none of them have really, really, really kind of like put emotional intelligence into the test. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I guess that's something that could be done. 
uh, yeah. we'll see what the future holds for my yeah. my yeah. And I'm really curious too about men and how men or non-binary folk think about body satisfaction and beauty standards and emotional intelligence, how that all kind of comes together as you're talking about it and how that affects our emotional well-being. So if it affects your, you know, self-esteem, that can also affect your emotional well-being. Or if you're bullied because of sort of a way you look as compared to some other standard, like how, like all of that interplay also seems to be really important, especially for young people. You know, you said, um, you know, don't be a conformist, but I think there's something that happens, especially in junior high and high school, where the expectation is you want to fit in. I mean, you either want to fit in or you want to stand out. And when you're standing out, you're fitting in with a bunch of people who stand out. But there's always yeah. this sense of kind of wanting to fit in. Definitely. No, yeah, that and that that's a real thing. People will do anything to be kind of like the mean girls of the high school to do anything. And especially young people, I think they now, I don't know, it's like it's pretty common to see people mm-hmm. saying, I need to lose weight to wear a dress to this party, to this uh mm-hmm. dance, or I need to have someone by my side to be happy. Uh, but in reality, I guess you don't need to. And that's, that's that. I think that's a, a really, really interesting discussion to have with yeah. young people and how they do that. When I was in high school, I think when I was in high school, I I was a cheerleader, co-captain, um, but I was having fun. I was having fun. I didn't do it because I wanted to meet the stereotype of being a queer in high school. I did mm. it because I wanted to be a cheerleader because I was having fun. And then people had this kind of like stereotypes. I have like strong opinions about stereotypes because sometimes they can be negative. Sometimes they can be positive. I think that the issue with stereotypes is overgeneralizing the stereotype and thinking that everyone fits into that same stereotype. Right. So I guess that I never wanted to fit in into the typical stereotype of being a cheerleader boy. Uh, kind of like what my friend said, it's like, oh, you, you, you don't take hard classes your GPA sucks. You don't do anything like that. I I never, I, I don't think that I, I wanted to fit into that stereotype. I was just doing cheer because I wanted to do it and I was mm-hmm. having fun. And then I just also felt that when I was in, in Nicaragua, I was very ostracized for my sexuality as well. And mm-hmm. the Hispanic community being queer is very, very, very something that it's not talked about enough and that mm-hmm. affected my mental health as well. But just being in cheer, it just made me feel less isolated. And I just found my inner self. I think yeah. that's what my that's what, what the old Jose wanted to do when he was in Nicaragua crying because he just didn't have anyone. It's so important that you bring this topic up. I think when we feel ostracized, we feel so alone. And that can be, you know, make us, you know, and again, I'm using us sort of globally, it can make people, yeah. you know, feel very well, depressed and sad. And of course, um, you know, that can lead to emotional struggles, especially if one can't be oneself, you know, to the fullest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about in mental health as is you you were saying that the the woman from Cuba was saying, oh, it's all about the pills, taking the pills. Um, And it's also about, you know, that could be one thing that, that somebody can do among other things. And I think we forget about some of the other things like um, meaning and belonging, like belonging and and being in community and inclusion um, also is an aspect of um, mental health and well-being, right? It's not just sort of like getting rid of the symptoms. We also have to have some of these other things in life. 
No, and just to add on with what you just said, I think that it's pretty common to just categorize people and say, oh, they're depressed, they need pills. But I could be depressed, I could go to work, I could study, I could do all the things that I have to do, I'll do it, but I'm still going to be depressed and I don't need the pills. And it's really hard for people to, to understand that everyone, every single human being has a different coping mechanism and every single situation, every single stressor has a different impact on everyone. So there are some people that need the help, they need to go to a therapy because they're depressed, they actually need it. There are other people that don't need it. And when I say that, I feel that at least this young generation is breaking the in intergenerational uh, trauma is because we are actually talking about our emotions and we are actually mm. doing all the work to feel better and to be better and to yeah. just find the happiness that we need and the happiness that we want. Because that's what I'm doing every day. I just want to be happy and we just want to survive, you know? And mm -hmm. I do understand that at least my mom, her childhood was not as the cutest. She had to work at an early young age. And then she had to immigrate here to Nicaragua, the, from Nicaragua he, to here. That's a huge trauma. Immigration is a huge trauma. Everything that she had to go through, it's a huge trauma. But I am also here and I'm grateful to be here. I'm beyond grateful mm -hmm. to have an education because in Nicaragua, I didn't have the best education ever. Um, it was a privilege going to school. So I'm grateful to be here. But I'm also grateful to have the information and the resources to take care of my mental health. And mm -hmm. as she said, it's like we were here for a better future. And yeah, we're here for a better future that. for physical and mental health as well. Yeah, yeah. And I'm so glad that, you know, you're here, you're um, speaking um, about this, you're sharing it with other people. And then other people, again, are finding ways to talk openly about it. And you know, you have your long lineup of people who want to, you know, yeah. uh, share on your social media. And I think that's, you know, like when I started this podcast, I said, oh, you know, I'm just going to talk to 15 people. I'm going to do 15 episodes. Mm -hmm. That was it. It was a birthday gift to myself, actually, <laughs> to do the podcast. Yeah. I launched it on my birthday and I <laughs> wanted to have, you know, people primarily who are black or brown with lived experience talk about kind of their work and how did they get into it? Mm -hmm. Okay, here I am 80 some odd episodes later. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's just like, you know, people are like, hey, can I get on the podcast? Hey, can I? I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, because okay. it's just so important um, to see yourself. Like I say, representation really does matter, really does yeah. matter. And I'm it so does. glad to see, you know, more young people um, taking that leap and really doing the do and doing way more than I said I did at 18. I didn't even know what the heck was going on at 16, 17, 18 starting clubs and doing social media and sharing their story and doing advocacy. So what do you, what do you hope to do sort of, you said something about, I want to go back to something um, mm -hmm. about um, mental health curriculum in school. Were you able to do any mental health curriculum at your school? So I live in Miami, Florida. That's a topic. Uh, that's a huge topic. Um, so yeah, Florida is a topic. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I wasn't able yet uh but mm. my my goal is just to incorporate mental health education into the school curriculum i think that the same way we teach students how to write the same way we teach students how to do math and the same way we prioritize physical health it should be the same way that we are prioritizing mental health and maybe it's not a class but maybe we have the accessible resources for 
students to seek up help. Because in high school, my high school, when I was a, a high school student, they pride themselves with having a lot of programs that help you get good score in the SAT and that help you get into the best colleges. Great. But they did not have a psychologist. They, I don't think they have one yet. They don't have a psychologist. And I'm not blaming the school. I love my school. I love my senior high. I love it so much. But what I'm saying is the lack of accessibility to mental health in the school. So I think that that's, and that's where now I'm starting more about the policy change and how to get into the policy change with mental health america um that's where i met you so yeah, yeah. yeah i'm getting there uh but i'm still advocating for mental health and i know that policy is very slow and it takes a lot of time but i i'm happy to see it. this is just the beginning of my mental health ad- advocacy this is just the beginning of my mental health field um involvement and I, i'm pretty sure you're going to see me more often and i'm pretty oh, yeah. sure <laughs> I, I got your number. I know where to find you. <laughs> yeah, this, and we're gonna put is, links, you know, to your to your social media site and any anything that you want us to link to, we can do that. So, uh, you know, people can get access to the information that you're talking about, which I think is, you know, so important. And, um, you know, just talking about how you're talking about mental health in schools, I think. Anybody can hear that, whether they agree that a psychologist needs to be in a school or not, or there, there's some people who are like, no, 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 the, that's the parent's job. It's not the school's job. But I like how you talk about thinking about a variety of ways to do it. There are a variety of ways yeah. to do it that can include, um, you know, mental health curriculum. It can include um, having, you know, social workers or psychologists in school, mm-hmm. all the way to um, providing resources for people so that they can um, do that outreach and get the support they need when they need it. So I just love that. So you're yeah, doing great advocacy that's... already. All right. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I, I remember um, the only mental health, support mental health that we have at school before in touch at Miami high I was the trust counselor but no one really knew about it and I remember after first meeting and after promoting that resource on social media a lot of people a lot of students there was a line outside the counselor's office uh so you can tell the need right you can tell the need and just having one individual for at least my school was like 3,000 kids, just having one individual for that whole ratio, it's like insane. So the the lack of mental health awareness and resources is lacking. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I like how you said, look, if, you know, we have what we need for taking the SAT, (laughs) be nice if you had what you need for your own mental health at the same time. So love that. So we're going to get ready to, oh, go ahead. Did you want to say something else? I was just going to add that then like students are needed to take PE classes to graduate, right? We care so much about physical health, but we don't care about students being emotionally competent leaders. Wow. 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 Okay. Snaps, claps, thumbs up the whole nine yards, right? So um, as we start to wrap up, I ask people to do some wisdom dropping or, you know, drop one piece of wisdom that they want the audience to hear. And you've done that, of course, throughout the whole uh, conversation. But is there one last piece of wisdom that you want from uh, for our audience to hear from you? So I know that a lot of high schoolers are right now getting their decisions from college, from early action and early decision one. And if you didn't get the decision that you wanted, I just wanted to tell you to never be ashamed of trying and that hard things will always happen to us. But guess what? We will recover. We will learn from it and we will become more resilient because of it. And to everyone else, 
never be ashamed of finding your happiness as well. You are responsible of finding that happiness and always do whatever makes you happy and always find your peace and your happiness because that's invaluable. Lovely. Thank you so much, Jose, for joining me on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. So, wow, is all I have to say. I don't even have words right now, but I do. And those words are (laughs) for the listeners. You all know I always ask, oh, make sure to subscribe, comment, blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, the most important thing is to share. So make sure to share the podcast. And of course, make sure to join in next week on Unapologetically Black Unicorns.